0: morning. There we go. Some of you are here. It's good. Um, yeah, welcome in person and people online. We're glad you guys could be here this morning. It's good. It's good to be able to gather. Um, we, we don't tend to do a lot for, uh, for holidays. If we don't tend to do a lot. We almost basically do nothing for holidays like Mother's Day and Father's Day. Um, they tend to be like emotional moments for people, either, like either good or bad. It's like their potentials with high holiday, poten- They're holidays with high potential. There we go, words are coming, you know, and you either have really good emotions or really bad. But I was reflecting as, as we are singing Good, Good Father together um, on the fact that that's the, the imagery within within Scripture um, about uh, God, presenting as father. And I know some people might not like this, but the reality is, is God could have chosen to present as a mother, and it would have been equally valid, right? I think that the idea that it's, it's parental is, is probably the, the most, most important bit. But I wonder if, there's a comedian that came up on my Instagram feed, which is a great place for sermon fodder, um, and uh it, it talked about how in, uh father's day is the 18th most most celebrated uh yeah if you've seen the 18th most celebrated uh holiday in in kind of the western world 18th right mother's day is number two so christmas mother's day then all these other hol- i don't know and he's just like can you name 18 other holidays it's like i can't right and it's beautiful and you're just like you wonder why Jesus, like god was just like didn't foresee that mother would have been a much like, stronger image. But I think that's the, re- like, the redemptive element of God, is just be like, you know what, I'm going to take like, the deadbeat in your life. <laughs> and I say that as sometimes a deadbeat dad, right? And I'm going to redeem that, because he could have taken the easier, more relatable, more celebrated parental thing. Um, and that, yeah, I know I offended half the people in the room, but I'm sure you'll get over it, right? Um, I'm, I'm just struck by that, that redemptive nature and that call to even though it can be a problematic image, that we can have baggage um, both good and bad with our parents, particularly our father on this day, that there is a redemptive element in that and that we can praise God for being a beautiful image and calling us to redeem those kind of images even though they're problematic. Anyways, now we're off on that tangent, and we won't, let's, let's move away from that. Maybe we'll stick with the idea of redemption, but we'll get back to there eventually. Um, our text this morning is in, is in Matthew 9. We continue with the lectionary, which we're going to w- be walking through all summer, and throughout most of the summer, we're going to be talking through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and this morning, uh, we're reading from uh, Matthew chapter 9, the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10 a bit. So I'll just, I'll read it to you and then we'll unpack it a bit together. Starting at verse 35. So Jesus traveled along the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues, announcing the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were troubled and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the size of the harvest is bigger than you can imagine. But there are few workers. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers for his harvest. He called his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to throw them out and to heal every disease and every sickness. Here are the names of the 12. Twelve Apostles. First Simon who was called Peter and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew and the tax collector, James the son of Alpha Phis and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaan and Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Jesus sent these twelve out and commanded them: don't go among the Gentiles or into a Samaritan city. Go instead to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. As you go, make this announcement. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with skin disease, and throw out demons. You received without having pay, without having to pay. Therefore, give without demanding payment. So, the, this. This passage starts out in verse 35. Jesus traveled among all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and announcing the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. This is like, this is a very nice one-sentence summary of everything Jesus had kind of done to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Ish. Like in chapters, the very beginning, chapters 1 to 4, you have Jesus' birth and kind of his formation as a... um, as a young person, and then eventually his temptation, the temptations of Jesus, which is a formative thing for him, and before he's kind of started his ministry, and then in five to seven, you have kind of Jesus, his almost his thesis, right? He gives us the Sermon on the Mount, which is like, he is like, you have heard it said, but now I'm saying to you, um, kind of thing, and then in eight verse, uh, chapters eight and nine, he. You have Jesus basically traveling around, calling. you hear about him calling a few of his disciples, but he's healing, doing a lot of healing. And so you have this this little summary. Jesus traveled among the villages and the cities, and he preached and he healed. And it doesn't actually say he preached, it said he announced the good news. And we often translate that to preach, which is maybe a bit sad, but. So the Sermon on the Mount, it is a beautiful kind of summary of what Jesus Announcing of the good news, so that's maybe where we get this idea that I preach. um, it preached. And when Jesus, when it says that Jesus went and he taught, that this the uh, the kingdom was near, and it says he he healed every disease and every sickness. It's important to note that does doesn't mean all. Okay, there's a big distinction here, and I I just note this because it's often a trap for us. We always want to think that Jesus heals everybody, and it, it actually means that he healed all sorts, not every single sickness he came upon. And the, the difference is, so healers typically have a style or a certain sickness. So you'd get a healer who, was at, who would travel around and heal blind people, although that was pretty rare because that was one of the things that was harder. But they would have a, a, a thing. They would make people walk, or that would be their thing. So when Jesus, when it says that Jesus healed every type of sickness, it means that He made people who couldn't walk able to walk. He made people who couldn't see able to see. Uh, He cleansed leprosy. He did all these type of things. So he didn't have a style or a niche. And that gave him, in people's minds, a greater sense of authority and voice because he wasn't pigeonholed into a specific type, right? So every type might be a better way to put it. As he was around, Jesus healed every type. He didn't heal every person. And in verse 36 it continues, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were troubled and helpless, like sheep, without a shepherd. Sometimes, like we read this, I think, as a single moment, like Jesus, all of a sudden, at one point, was kind of overcome with compassion. But it says that Jesus traveled from village to city, from village to city, and every time a crowd was gathered jesus was moved with compassion he was overwhelmed because he saw a troubled and helpless people sheep without a shepherd and it happens over and over and over again and i think this this is important for us i think we, we, we tend to want like those formative moments and we forget that sometimes it's the formative moments, many, many little ones. And I think this is what Jesus is experiencing. Everywhere he goes, he's seeing trouble, helplessness, people without a shepherd. And this people without a shepherd line is is a, uh, a reference to Ezekiel 34. So it's a passage that is actually called The Good Shepherd. Um, and it's a beautiful passage. If you're looking for something to read, it's a, uh, I won't put you through me reading it to you this morning, but it's a beautiful thing that kind of uh, emphasizes this prophecy that someone is coming to offer care and shelter to the lost people of Israel, in particular, right? To go to, to be the true shepherd. I'll read verses 11 and 12 to you. That the the Lord God proclaims, "I teach. I myself will search for my flock and seek them out, as shepherd seeks out the flock. As a shepherd seeks out the flock when some in the flock have been scattered, so I will seek out my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered during the time of clouds and thick darkness." Th- this allusion to Ezekiel gives. I think some clarity to other parts of the passage, and we'll come back to those in a minute. But you get this, this sheep without a shepherd, which is a theme that comes up again and again uh, throughout some of the Old Testament prophets, but specifically in Ezekiel 34. So Jesus continues. He, he said, he, then he said to his disciples, the size of the harvest is bigger than you can imagine, but there are few workers. Therefore plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers for his harvest. I don't know about you, but I tend to associate the image of harvest with the end times, right? Um, We tend to think like the harvest will come and God will like collect all of his people and that's kind of the harvest. But in this passage, to go there I think would be a misreading. It's not about the end times. Um, It doesn't actually fit, it would make... The passage not really makes sense. And so I think it's important for us to resist that kind of connection. In in, in the context when Jesus mentioned uh, a har- the harvest, he's referring to people in need of good news and healing. The troubled, the helpless crowds of the people in each town and visited that he moved him, the, the people that had moved Jesus to compassion, he had gone to the villages and he had seen that... that the amount of trouble and helplessness was overwhelming. The harvest was huge, the need was great. Jesus is saying, we need more workers. We need people who will carry the good news, who will offer healing. And I love that Jesus says that you should pray for this, right? He says you should pray that God would send out some people. And then in the very next breath, he gathers his people and he sends them out, right? You should pray for this and we're gonna do it, right? He called the 12 disciples to them and gave them authority over the unclean spirits to throw them out and to heal every sickness and he sent them out. I don't, I don't know about you, I, I always cringe when I, I say this but when I just say to someone, you know what, I'll pray for you. Ever caught yourself saying that? It's a beautiful thing, right? Like to offer prayer for someone to cry out on someone else's behalf. But often as Christians, it's our like, that's as far as we're really willing to go. I'll pray for you and then we leave. And I love that Jesus doesn't model that for us. He says, you have to pray for this and then, come on, let's go, right? He encourages prayer, but he also does something about the problem. Pray for workers and get to work. And then the author of the Gospel of Matthew, he does um, what I can only imagine is kind of like an introduction of the band. He names the disciples. First we have Simon on drums. He's also called Peter. You know what I mean? It's just, he kind of goes through the rigmarole and he lets people know who they are, yeah? Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like who they, it kind of gives them a voice and authority. And these 12, they get special mention, even though they aren't the only disciples. Um, And I think they appear to be the most committed. They're the ones that constantly stick around. And I should say that they're the ones that constantly stick around that are also male. Because there are, unfortunately, this is one of the signs of the times, but you have... Uh, there are female disciples who get mentioned periodically, who are always there, um, sometimes get named, Mary, uh, Magdalene often gets named, but often gets shunted kind of to the side in situations like this. And we assume it's cultural. It's just one of those things that we wish we wish could have been, I, I wish could have been different. Um, but... Um, There's the 12, plus others who kind of get forgotten. So Jesus sends out these 12, and he sends them out, and this is the only time that the Gospel of Matthew uses the word apostles. And I don't know about you, but the word apostle, second Dan, um, it's got baggage, right? Like, I think most people who would like to use the word apostle are people we really wish wouldn't use the word apostle. Like if someone comes up to you and says, hi, I'm Mark and I'm an apostle, you should get creepy vibes, I, th- I think, right? Um, it just kind of, it sets us off a bit. Um, but it, it's, it's one of those words that I think has been misused and abused, usually by the people who claim the title. They want to elevate its status, like I'm an apostle and you need to listen to me, uh, kind of thing. But it it actually just means sent. So up till this point, the disciples, the 12 and others, who had been following Jesus, to be a disciple is to follow, to be an apostle is to be sent out. It's not really that complicated. So you could just like, these are followers of Jesus and these are the ones that Jesus sent out. They're actually the same people, uh, just performing two functions of what it means to follow Jesus kind of thing, and we can read into it, and there's lots of word play there, but I don't think we need to be scared of, of the word apostle, except for when people try to lord it over us, right? So Jesus sent out the 12 and commanded them, don't go among the Gentiles or into a Samaritan city, go instead to the sheep, the, to, go instead to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. This is, I think, one of those passages that I just wish wasn't there. Because I think it requires a little bit of head work for us to actually get around. Because it feels like, when I read that, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans. Go instead to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus is placing the Jewish people, the lost people of Israel, as more important than the Gentiles or the Samaritans. And there's people who would believe this and point to this scripture as a proof for that. And I think, I think that's a bit of a misunderstanding and a misreading. And I think for three reasons. I think there's the question of inspiration, there's the question of journey, and there's the question of safety that I think Jesus is, is walking through. And I think the most obvious, the, this, this question of inspiration, Jesus began this whole kind of thing by referencing Ezekiel 34. He said, there's people who are lost without a shepherd. My people, my family, my tribe, lost without a shepherd. And in Ezekiel 34, it specifically talks about the lost people of Israel over and over and over again. So this is obviously churning in Jesus' mind. So when he says, go to the people of Israel first, he's calling on the inspiration that brought him to this kind of headspace. He's following through on the idea that was presented to him by the prophet, right? So it would make sense. He got a good idea, he was inspired, and he was following through on it. Second, I think there's there's this question of journey. Because in the gospel, in in the Sermon on the Mount, which precedes this, Jesus was teaching about loving your enemy. And I'm sure the disciples had an idea, a glimmering beginning idea of what this actually might mean to love our enemies. But I'm sure it, there was a lot of work to do. You ever find that? You learn to love one enemy and there's still a lot of work to do to, when you uncover the fact that there's 10, 20, 30 others that you also have to learn how to love, right? I didn't even know I hated him, kind of thing. And so I think the, this is the beginning of this disciple's journey. Um, and so, there be, Jesus is introducing them to this idea of love your enemy, which is new, right? Like, it's, it would have made them uncomfortable, and they would have been de- learning how to define who is my enemy and how do I love them, and so uh, Jesus isn't going to throw them into the midst of, you know what, you're going to love your enemy, go to the Romans, He's bringing them along on a journey. It, just before this, Jesus calls the, the, the disciple and apostle Matthew, the tax collector, and he would have been viewed as an enemy. So Jesus is already starting to break down those walls, but he's doing it as, as a process, as a journey. The theologian Howard, Howard Thurman, he was a, a civil rights theologian, in, and in his book, Jesus Isn't Disinherited, he talks about your kind of your three, your three enemies that you'll have to face in your life. Um, and he talks about the, the hated insider who would have been um, uh, the tax collector, right? Someone who is part of, you'd think is part of the family but has done this kind of ultimate betrayal so that's the hated. That's your kind of your first enemy, and then you have the hated outsider, who would have been the Samaritans, The people who they're connected with, they know well, um, and then you have the hated oppressor, those ones who are actually looking to uh, to cause you pain. Those would have been the Romans, which would have been one of the the, uh, the Gentile groups, and so Jesus is, I think, beginning them on this journey of dealing with. The different types of enemies that they'll have in their life but he's not going to go full full bore on them just yet and i think the third question the question of safety there's two fold pieces to this right i think first and maybe obviously there's a question if jesus is sending out 12 mostly young men and saying to them go and preach go teach and heal there's got to be a question of safety right like I know in today's day and age, Jesus would be getting a phone call from some parents, you sent my son where, right? Uh, They were largely potentially going into hostile environments. So to say like go into a Jewish uh, community, it would have been a lot safer for them as as disciples, as apostles, right? They would have been going to like-minded people. And I think the other side of the safety coin is that who they're being sent to These were young, probably zealous people that were about, who were, were not about to, they were notorious for saying and doing stupid things. And I think Jesus had in mind to protect the people that he eventually wanted to bring into the fold. The work, you ever notice, notice that, that when we're called to love our enemy that we also have to do work on ourselves before we can love in kind of any healthy way? And I think Jesus was just like, no, 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 I'm not sending you out to the Samaritans and Gentiles because you guys are gonna be jerks about it. And you're not ready for that. So Jesus is loving, I think he's in this, is loving and protecting the Samaritans, the Gentiles, and the Romans. Waiting for the apostles to gain a bit of experience, a bit of know-how. And Jesus sends them out, and he says in verse 7, he says, as you go, make this announcement. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Here, here has come near. near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with skin diseases, and throw out demons. You received without pay, therefore give without demanding payment. Jesus has kind of spelled it out just in case the disciples missed what Jesus has been doing. He said, as you go, announce the kingdom of heaven, and heal. That's what I'm sending you out to do. And I think sometimes this language of the kingdom of heaven trips us up a bit. We kind of get this worldly picture of of kingdom, right? We think about our own uh, little, our nations, our countries. We think about the rulers. And I think this taints how we think about it. And Joel this week, he sent me uh, a podcast, which there was an interview, it's the Nomad podcast, if you wanna look it up, there's an interview with Sally Mann, and Sally Mann is a atypical Baptist minister in the east of London. And throughout the podcast, she asked this question, and for me, I think it was a beautiful question, and it resonated as I was thinking about this, is what does the rule of love look like in our community? And I think, I found like I was struck by the fact that it was a different way of wording the kingdom of heaven is near. What does the rule of love look like in our community? It's a beautiful kingdom oriented question, but it changes the language for me which I found helpful. It changed the way of thinking so I wasn't getting caught up in the fact of my tainted idea of kingdoms. Right? Cuz scripture tells us that God is love and so if you think about love being in charge, love being the final thing, you're saying kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And this idea of the rule of love, the kingdom of God, I think they're, they're synonymous. But maybe if you're like me, you'll find the language a bit more accessible. So when Jesus says to his disciples, he says, go and announce the kingdom of heaven, go and announce the kingdom of God, he is saying to them, go and announce that the rule of love is nearer than you could ever know. It's closer than you think. And then he says, show them. The rule of love is close, and here's a little taste of it. Here's healing of the sick, raising of the dead, the cleansing of the sick, and the throwing out of demons. Jesus is saying, tell people that love is way closer than you could ever imagine, and then care for the community. You prayed for workers, now become the worker, show the, the rule of love, show the kingdom of God. And I think for me, I find that really an empowering and exciting way to think about my faith. I can, it makes it really tangible. For me, it helps make sense of why we actually do what we do here at Royal City Mission. This is like, why do we function as a drop-in? Why do we uh, give out free meals? Why do we participate in those things? Because we are desperately trying to live under the rule of love, to live out the kingdom of heaven here in Guelph. But Jesus adds one final caveat at the very end. And I tell you, as someone who is paid by the church, it sucks. Do this for nothing. For me, I'm partially encouraged because often we think that like in Western kind of capitalist thought, that we're the only ones who ever wanted to monetize anything. But don't worry, it's, it's a 2,000-year-old problem, right? It's been a temptation probably since the beginning of time to think that when we give something, we should get something in return. But Jesus says, you're gonna go, you're gonna say that the rule of love is near, you're gonna show how close it can be, and you're gonna do it for nothing. And I don't think it always has to be money because I think that trips us up a bit. It could be anything, anything we get out of it. It could be recognition, acclaim, power. I don't really think it matters what we get out of the situation. If we are out there saying we follow God, follow follow Jesus, and we're preaching that love is near, and then we're offering care and compassion, out of that and then we say we'll only do it if we get something in return we have completely fallen on our face and missed the whole point point. and you know what i think for, i'll confess for me as someone who is paid by a church if i was only part of this church because you paid me to be that would be really sad and i actually do think there's lots of ministers i'm not full confess i started coming here because i was i was excited about what royal city mission was doing and we needed administrators that was my role. So I, I hate this, but I also feel like I'm, I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay. But I also think like as, as, we, as we think about Royal City Mission and what we do, can we be people who will do this for nothing? Who don't need a claim, who don't need um, special recognition, favors, all that kind of stuff. And as we are an organization, a church that grows in our scope and as people say like we now have we have like face value people who know who we are in the community of Guelph can we continue to stay humble and not demand that you know everything we do I think those are good questions for us can we avoid making our love of people transactional as a community and I think as individuals that's an important one the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near. The rule of love is possible in the here and now. Are there any questions, feedback? <laughs> that was a quick hand, quiet. I'm just curious what your uh, opinion is on why they felt lost since they were the chosen people. Like what does what being lost look like that Jesus had compassion again? I think I've already quoted this this song once before, but there's a really good Ben Harper song that I love that says, "I know I'm lost because I know I'm found because I know who I seek." And so the reality is, is, the Jewish people lived extremely oppressed, right, with a sense of entitlement, which is the worst. If you think that you're God's people, you know that you're God's chosen people, but at the same time, for the last thousands of years, you've been occupied and oppressed that has to do something to your soul, right? And so you've got a whole bunch of people who are losing their sense of who they're chasing after. They're losing their sense of uh, the fact that they're called to something greater than themselves. And so, and they're experiencing real oppression. Something that is hard for us, I think, generally to wrap our mind around. Um, We are not occupied. Other people might make an argument for that against that. But generally, we're not. And so it's hard for us to map around. So I think they were losing a sense of what they were called to, and so they're lost without their shepherd because um, they partially, I think, because they lost the vision of what, what could be. Does that make sense? Okay. Anyone else, questions, thoughts, feedback? Um, not really sure how um, how strong of a theology this is, but when I think of the harvest, I think of it as a season, um, and you think of it as um, as the end times, or or have attributed that because I also think about the parable where he is um, uh, where Jesus spreads the seeds, and some is on good soil, some is on rocky soil, and so on. So we have different seasons for planting. And sharing the good news and being a good neighbor. And there's also a season of harvest where um, numbers are added, as in Acts. So that's my take on the harvest.
1: Don't I always need to be sending people out. Maybe. Just thinking. Just thinking of that harvest comment it reminds me. Um, my mom knew a family uh, who just they were corn farmers, and just before the harvest, their dad died in a car accident, and they were 10 and 12. And they spent three days, day and night harvesting at 10 and 12 years old to collect the harvest so that they could pay for the mortgage that year and so that they could survive for the next year. And when thinking about collecting the harvest, a lot of times people are thinking of it as this joyous occasion, but sometimes it's just hard. And sometimes it's just doing what needs to be done to collect and move forward and cash in on that moment so that they can exist and um we like to glorify uh this bounty that we're collecting but for sometimes it's just collecting what we can and allowing us to move forward and i think that side of that sustenance and that existence that we get from the harvest uh, is lost uh, in the the glorification of it's a bountiful harvest I'm recognizing that it's it's sustenance. It's where we get our life. It's where we get our um, our hope and um, the harvest that is offered to us. That that sustenance, that survival aspect, I think, is a key part that's often missed. Uh, that's
0: that's cool. I think um, most people who have a glorified view of the harvest had never been on a farm, right? <laughs> Um, one of my best friends growing up was they had a farm, and so every hay, every hay season they 're like knocking on everybody 's door and you 're going out and it 's just like of course we 're going to come help you and you 're thinking i don 't know if we 're going to be friends this time next year all right because it 's hard work and that's I think that 's a good reminder to tom is it 's easy for us to uh, particularly because we 're removed um, from the production most of the time. Uh, like some of us have backyard gardens that we get our four carrots from, which is cute. Uh, but we're removed from the harvest, so remembering the hard work of it, um, and uh, kind of the slog, slog of it. Let me uh, let me send us off with uh, the benediction of uh, Francis de Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, unity. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is error, truth. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. Lord God, God grant that we may not seek, to mu- seek so much to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. May the Lord God bless you and keep you. May the Lord show their face to you and have mercy on you. May the Lord look on you and give you peace. Go in the grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: Amen.